Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Particular in context, in Matthew 24 through 25, it's all about being ready. Everybody say, be ready. God is serious about us always being ready. And um, how many here have... uh, Those of us who drive, has anybody in here ever run out of gas? Anybody here? Put your hand up if you've ever run out of gas. Isn't it funny, especially today with the kind of automobiles that we have today, there's all kinds of people, and they say the AA, I looked up a statistic, they said over 65% of all call-outs are people that run out of gas, and hundreds of thousands of people. And yet, we've got an indicator, don't we? It tells us... Petrol's getting lower and lower and lower. Newer cars, you've got ding, 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 flashing lights. But how many of you, nevertheless, warnings, flashing lights, you still run out of gas? It's because we don't heed the warnings, right? That's what all this is about this morning. It's because we simply don't really take heed to the warning signs that are around us. Amen. Amen. So anyhow, this is, we're going to start at Matthew 24, 32. All, again, we could stop in every two or three scriptures. There's a ton of stuff, but I've got, like I said, I could go for four or five weeks with what I've got on my plate this morning. Verse 32, Matthew 24, the Amplified Bible. I'm sure they'll try to get it up here in a moment. Jesus is speaking. He said, from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its young shoots become soft and tender and it puts out its leaves, you know of a surety that summer's near. In other words, right from the beginning, Jesus is saying, you can look at things around you that God, my Father, has made, and it's an indicator of things that are just around the corner, right? Verse 33, so also when you see these signs all taken together coming to pass, you may know of a surety that he is near at the very door. Truly I tell you, this generation, the whole multitude of people living at the same time in this definite given period. In other words, he's talking about when these things happen within the scope of a given generation, not the generation that he's talking to right there, but within the scope of a given generation, everything that he's talking about here is going to take come to pass. The Bible generation, depending on what school of thought you go to, is 30 years, 33 or 40 years. But basically, it's around, let's say, 35 years. But anyhow, within the scope of a 35-year plan or time, all these things are going to take place. Verse 34 again. Anyhow, he said in verse 35, let's jump to 35, sorry. Sky and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that exact day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For just as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, men marrying, women being given in marriage, until the very day when Noah went into the ark, and they did not know or understand until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now through all of this, it speaks of this issue of the totally completely unexpected return. 
that things are going to be as normal as normal can be. When you study it out, you find out that though there's going to be perilous times, we'll quote a bunch of scripture, there'll be perilous times and things going on. But it says that when Jesus Christ returns, that basically, as we'll read in a little bit, there'll be two guys in the field, one will be taken, one will remain. That it's just going to be normal. You're just going to be cooking dinner. You're going to be putting gas in your car or whatever. And the whole point of what he says, he continues to speak to this, that it's going to come totally unexpected. And again, what it's speaking to is that we can know the season, like he said, like no one knew, God said he instructed him to build the ark. And he knew that for a long time. It took him years to build the ark. But he knew something was coming, but he had no idea exactly when. But he knew something was coming. It's kind of like firemen today. You know, firemen is a good illustration. Uh, my nephew was a fireman for a long time. He's retired. But firemen always have to be ready. In America, but even here, you know, they're clo- when, when they're sleeping at the, at the firehouse, the station, their clothes are already laid out. Everything's ready because they know at some time there's going to be a fire. Without a shadow of a doubt, and so they have to be ready for a fire. Even when they go to the store, they go to groceries, firemen always have a radio with them because they know at, at, the, at a split moment they've got to respond. They always have to be ready. And all this that we're going to look at is just this. Is Jesus trying to keep us in an attitude of being ready? Are we ready? And what does it really look like to be saved? And some of it, like I said, a little bit's going to get kind of heavy. But anyhow, um, verse 39, it says, And they did not know or understand until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 40, At that time, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the hand mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Watch, therefore... The word watch is agripaneo in the Greek. It literally means to chase sleep. (laughs) Chase sleep. That's a good word for people in church on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Do your best to chase sleep, okay? But listen, Jesus said, watch, therefore, give strict attention, be cautious and active, for you do not know in what kind of a day, whether a near or a remote one, your Lord is coming. But understand something. Have the householder known in what part of the night, whether in a night or a morning watch, a thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be undermined or broken into. You also must be ready, therefore, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is that faithful, thoughtful, and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give to the others the food and supplies at the proper time. Blessed, happy, fortunate to be envied is that servant whom, when his master comes, he will find so doing. In other words, the wise and the faithful servant is going to be that one that is about the father's business, working with the instructions that he's been given. He said, verse 47, I solemnly declare to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But... If that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is delayed and going to be gone a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect it, and at an hour of which he's not aware, and he will punish him, cut him up by scourging, put him with the pretenders and the hypocrites, 
and there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Basically, what this speaks to is just this. There's something I wrote, I wrote this down just when I was relooking at stuff this morning. We don't understand how easy it is to grow weak when we're waiting. When something has gone on for a time, for year after year, when something hasn't happened for a long time, things that you do hope for, you expect for, let's face it, you know, one of hell's job, it says in Isaiah, one of Satan's main job is to wear out the saints, to get you to weary. It says to wear you out in in their mind. You get weary from waiting. Basically, that's why we find all these scriptures where it says, but you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise or the reward. But this servant, this sloppy servant, or as one point says, this, this unwise slave, evidently he just figured, you know, it was so long, the master said he's coming, but he hasn't come, he hasn't come. What the heck? He's not coming. I'm not going to take care of the other people like he told me to. I'm just going to take his stuff, and I'm going to boogie with my friends. We're going to have a good time. We're going to party and just relax and do whatever's necessary, do whatever I want to do. But it says he didn't understand. And the moment that happened, the moment he had that attitude, what happened, of course, the, the master of the house did come. And when he found him, just totally lapsed, not following what he'd asked, been asked to do, none of that. It says, actually, in the Greek, it says he, was, he cut him in half. That's what it says in the Greek. How many of you want to be cut in half? Say no. It's not a good thing. Hallelujah. Anyhow. Now, here's where we're going to start. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I've got to move quick. I'm, I'm frustrated already. Um, in chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus continues, said, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, it says here in the Amplified, thoughtless without forethought. Five were wise, sensible, intelligent, and prudent. But when the foolish took their lamps, they did not, now this is even in the Amplified, see how it says the word extra? Extra is not in the scripture. And this is important in rightly dividing this parable. Extra is not in there at all. Extra is not in there in the King James, it's not in there. It's not that they didn't take any extra oil. What happened in those days is, particularly with a, <clears throat> with a, uh, a wedding, one have your lamps or something, they never had oil. They never put oil in the lamp. They carried oil in a flask. And when the appropriate time was there, like for a march towards a wedding or inside the actual area where they're going to have the wedding, they filled them then so that they could be lit to provide the light and bring forth a little heat. Actually, some of them were larger. But anyhow... It says, really, verse 3 again, For when the foolish took their lamps, they did not take any oil with them. So they had no oil. But the wise took flasks of oil along with them, also with their lamps. Verse 5, while the bridegroom lingered, you know, the bridegroom's always, this is speaking about, again, the return of Christ. While the bridegroom lingered and was slow in coming, they all began nodding their heads and they fell asleep. There was nothing wrong with that. The five wise ones fell asleep as well because it was that time of the night. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, go out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and put their lamps in order. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil 
Four lamps are going out, but they weren't even lit. The only thing that they said when you study it out, it says that because of the wick, I could go through this whole little Edderman's book of the Bible dictionary thing. It talks about the wick that was there, and they could have lit it for a moment, and it might have sputtered for a little while, but there was no oil. They had no oil, is what it says. Anyhow, then all the virgins got up and put their lamps in order. Verse 8, and the foolish said, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise said, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to the dealers and buy for yourselves. But while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were prepared went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. The bridegroom, he, replied, I solemnly declare to you, I do not know you. I'm not acquainted with you. Watch, therefore, give strict attention, and be cautious and active, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man will come. Now, I'm going to stop there, and I'm just going to read, because like I said, I want to try to get through. I've got a lot of stuff to get through. The five foolish virgins had no oil. The difference between the five wise and the five um, foolish, what this is speaking of is oil always stands for salvation. Salvation. Say salvation. Oil. The five, there were five that had oil. They were saved. The foolish virgins were not once saved but then ran out of salvation. (laughs) They were lost. They never had oil. Just empty lamps. They looked useful. They gave the promise of light, but they never produced it. Now, the five virgins weren't mean. Excuse me. The five virgins weren't mean in not sharing the oil because you understand, again, oil being salvation. It's simply that you can't give away your salvation to someone else. Now, what we're about to talk about is the whole issue of false Christians. We're talking about the issue of people that are in church, talk church, sing church, walk, walk church, but they're not saved. They've never been born from above. And if I can get to the end of this, we're going to look at some indicators that, well, you know, what are the signs of actual salvation? But this is really frightening when you look at it. But again, so when they said, give us some of your oil, I want you to catch that. You, your salvation can't get somebody else saved. Now, I'm not saying you're not to witness, but what I'm trying to say is, if we go through the scriptures, well, gosh, like I said, I've got so many things. Turn to Ezekiel 18:20 real quick. It says, the soul that sins, the soul that sins, it is that one that shall die. The son shall not bear and be punished for the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear and be punished for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him only. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon the wicked only. In other words, each one is responsible for their own life. My righteousness can't rub off on you, per se. See, I've got to be careful because, you know what I mean, we need to be around other people. We can learn from other people. But it's, trying, it's talking about the root truth of salvation. Just because Rod's saved, you're not going to be able to, when Rod gets, believe it or not, I'm going to heaven. Hallelujah. <laughs> But when the rapture takes place, when I rise to be with the Lord, and I pray every single one of you will do at the same time, nobody's going to be able to grab you by the ankle, you know what I mean, and saying, I'm going with you, because I know you so well, I've been a good friend, hallelujah, you know what I mean, 
I'll go with you. They're not going to be able to enter heaven based upon your life. Everybody will be judged by their own righteousness, by their own right standing, but their own life. Okay? You'll also see the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 29 and 30. And again, all of these parables in this discourse have to do with being ready for his return. This parable, like all the others in this section, Jesus is speaking, when you look at it, he's speaking to his disciples privately. This isn't something that's being shared with the whole crowd. This is something that's being spoken to the disciples. This is private instruction for those who are followers of Jesus or who think they are. We should keep in mind that in this crowd of people Jesus is sharing this with, Judas is with them, right? So Judas is there, but he was never born from above. And so this is talking about the church, the condition of the church as it was, as it was addressed to his disciples as far as the time to come. Now, first, excuse me. It's possible to be in close contact with Christ and with Christians and yet not be saved. Similar to the passage Luke 13. Now let's turn back to Luke, excuse me, turn forward to Luke 13. Let's read this one as well. Start at verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved or rescued and delivered from the penalties of the last judgment and made partakers of the salvation of Christ? And he said to them, strive to enter by the narrow door. In the Amplified, it says, force yourselves through it. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. The word strive there in the Greek is agonizani, and it's where we get the word agonize. And here's where we begin to get the hints, and this is why we have to be delivered. Something was already said this morning. I forget who said it. It might have been Eric. But we've got to be delivered. Actually, I think it was Ayana. We have to be delivered from our comfortable Christianity. I am a stone-cold preacher of the love of God, the grace of God, for which I will always preach. But people do get real sloppy. And one of the things we have to really be careful of is just thinking that, you know, our whatever we did yesterday is going to count good for today. And it doesn't work like that. The word strive, and it talks about, you know, we know the scriptures. They're wide, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Let me tell you, it's easy to flow with the world, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to get sucked up into the world. It doesn't take much effort at all to find yourself suddenly. Church is no big deal. Reading this book is no big deal. I'm going to spend more time out there. I want to go to the cinema more. I want to go to some concerts. I mean, I want to do something that's got some life to it, man. I want some action. You know what I mean? I want this. I'm, you know, I want the real stuff, man. Church, and you see, when people have that attitude, we have to be very careful because we have to really begin to look. The Bible says, well, look, get to that verse in Corinthians a little while about examine yourself. You do need to examine yourself to see if you're even saved. It's really easy to be converted to Christianity. Uh, to be, like I said, you've heard me say many times, to be converted to church, but not ever having been converted to Christ. It's uh, like Dr. Cole used to teach all the time about young people who grow up in church, just like in the streets, we talk about people that are streetwise. Well, in church, we have a lot of people that are churchwise. Young people that grow up in church and they know how to act church, whatever, they're really good on Sundays. 
They know how to look the part. They're just church-wise. And we got people that are 65, 75 years old that are church-wise. You know what I mean? But they're not saved. Anyhow. So he says, strive to enter in by the narrow gate. In other words, this whole thing, I want you to understand something about this Christian experience. There is a pressure. You do have to make the decision to live for Christ. It doesn't just happen. Somebody doesn't just flip a switch and you're super holy. There is an effort that you need to make. You actually do have to fight temptation. Do you hear me? You, you really do. There is a fight. There is an aggression. There is something that you have to rise up. You have to, you have to have a decisiveness in your character. There has to be something about you that wants to pursue this stuff. One of the things Jesus said about the end times is that the love of many will wax cold or grow cold. And he speaks about how that first initial attraction gets weaker and weaker and weaker until suddenly, again, church, as it were, is just another hobby. It's what I do on Sundays. Some play bingo, some go to this, I go to church. But it carries the same meaning as bingo. And again, like I've said in the last few weeks, there's nothing common about church. Church has nothing to do with bingo. <laughs> church is about giving reverence to the living God who placed the very breath that you have in your lungs at this moment. You are only alive because of the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's the only reason you're here. And you've got to, well, even the, the thing about the ten virgins... You know, how many of you know that there's, there's a scripture that speaks to other scripture that says that there is no scripture that's without significance, right? The Jews say this all the time. You'll hear this statement. Everything means something in scripture. Everything. Every jot, every tittle, every little thing means something. And there's some people that are incredibly gifted at hunting out all those little things. But it's even like uh, when you study the parable of the sower in Mark 4, Jesus talks about four types of soil, right? And it's interesting to me, it always struck me that Jesus Christ himself said, out of the four types of soil, all of the people hear the word, but only one type of soil, only 25% of the people who hear the word bear any fruit from it at all. 25. In other words, three out of four people don't really bear fruit. They have a little for a while in one case, but then it backs off. But the virgins, Jesus Christ himself is speaking. What do you do with this? Five and five is ten. Five go in, and the door is shut. The other five, they go and they try to buy some oil, and they say, we got oil, but the Lord has shut the door. The bridegroom has shut the door. And it's just exactly like Genesis 7, the story of Noah. Noah builds this ark for years until the day God says, go into the ark and take your family. And remember in scripture it says, and then the Lord shut the door. And I don't care how many people were beaten on that door to get in. When you study this out, it says this, the day of mercy has passed. That's a frightening word. The day of mercy, the day of God's grace had ended. And no matter how hard they knocked on that door, it was too late. And again, one more scripture, just take down the scripture reference if you want. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. 
There is a point of no return where a heart can get so hardened that they've simply gone so far that God's given them over. It says in 2 Thessalonians that God gives them over because of the hardness they are. They're given over to a spirit of delusion that their hearts are sealed against God. Basically, friends, that means they're going to spend eternity in hell, which is not a nice place. Strive, agonize, work at being a Christian. Don't just rest on your laurels. Every single day, we're called to make an effort to enter into this narrow gate. It's, it's narrow. It's not wide. I'll say it again. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. Anybody can, a dead duck can flow downstream. But the Christian experience is swimming upstream. We're swimming against the current of this world that wants you to get involved with drugs and premarital sex and adultery and any other kind of stuff. It's the world that wants you, the world wants you to think that's normal. You know that. They're the ones that say we're too exclusive. They say we're old-fashioned. They say, no, it's just that we're wise unto salvation, and we've discovered that real life comes from being around real life. And real life is the, man, is the man, Jesus Christ. But you have to strive. You have to make an effort. You really do. I said you really do. I just so want you to hear that. You need to make an effort. You need to wake up every... You don't just kick back. If you kick back, you're in dangerous territory, man, I'm telling you. Strive, verse 24, strive to enter by the narrow door. Force yourselves through it. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able Verse 25, when once the master of the house gets up and closes the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door again and again saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer you, I do not know where, what household, certainly not mine, I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, and this is, listen to this, we ate and drank in your presence, Right? These are people saying, we were right there with you, Jesus. We ate, we drank where you were. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you wrongdoers. Verse 28, there will be weeping and grinding of teeth when you, these people, see, they're going to be able to see the people who go into everlasting perdition. The Bible says they're, they're, they're always going to be able to see. It's amazing. It's a whole other study. Every person that's in hell right now can see those who made it and are already in the presence of God. That's part of the hellishness of the very experience. And they all see how they could have made better choices. Then there will be weeping and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast forth, banished, driven away. And people will come from east and west and from north and south, and they will sit down and feast. And there's people in hell to see this. No feast at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are some now last who will be first then, and there, will, there are some now first who will be last then. 
Now, at this particular time, why this was really shocking to this, this bit here, because this was to the disciples and to others, is because to the Jews at this point, the Jews felt their race to be superior above every other race. And when Jesus said people are going to come from the north and the south, the east and west, from all over the world and be joined to this kingdom, that upset them because they thought it was only them. They had no comprehension of it. At least these people didn't. And again, it's just, it's just very important to catch that. Now, I guess I've got, I was, I've got something here I'm going to read from Matthew Henry's commentary. I've got a PowerPoint, whosoever's back there, if you can just put up the, the first slide. Matthew Henry, I, I looked this morning, I just started looking at all the different commentaries about this passage. Now, this is just, I had four pages on Matthew Henry, and I said, I can't do that. But this is just one part. I just wanted to read this. This is part, just part of his commentary. He says, think of the distinguishing day that is coming and the decisions of that day, and you will say there are a few that shall be saved and that we are concerned to strive. Now, remember, this is 18th century, so the language is far different than the way we talk. The master of the house will rise up and shut to the door. Christ is the master of the house that will take cognizance of all that frequent his house and are retainers to it. He will examine comers and goers and those that pass and repass. Now, he seems as if he left things at large, but the day is coming when he will rise up and shut to the door. What door? A door of distinction. Now, this part, this is freaky, this next paragraph, because this talks about preachers. I'm a preacher. Now, within the temple of the church, there are carnal professors who worship in the outer court and spiritual professors who worship within the veil. Also, this means not just speakers, but when the word professor, it doesn't mean like in university, those who profess the faith. But it speaks about also those who preach the faith. Let me read that again. It's a door of distinction. Now, within the temple of the church, there are carnal professors who worship in the outer court and spiritual professors who worship within the veil. Between these, these two places, the door is now open and they meet promiscuously in the same external performances. But when the master of the house is risen up, the door will be shut between them that those who are in the outer court may be kept out and left to be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles, Revelations 11.2. As to those that are filthy, shut the door upon them, let them be filthy still, that those who are within may be kept within, that those who are holy may be holy still. The door is shut to separate between the precious and the vile, that sinners may longer, no longer stand in the congregation of the righteous. Then you shall return and discern betwixt them. It's also a door of denial and exclusion. The door of mercy and grace has long stood open, but they would not come in by it. They would not be beholden to the favor of that door. They hoped to climb up some other way and to get to heaven by their own merits. And therefore, when the master of the house is risen up, he will justly shut that door. Let them not expect to enter by it, but let them take their own measures. Thus, when Noah was safe in the ark, God shut the door to exclude all those that depended upon shelters of their own in the approaching flood. Hallelujah. This is that statement where we talk about, again, throughout Scripture, I quoted this, I think, even last week in, I think, in Matthew 7, where Jesus said, understand something, you know, there will be false prophets in wolves in 
sheep's clothing. Remember that? Wolves, but they're going to have sheep's clothes on. In other words, they're wolves, but they're going to look just like sheep. Turn to your neighbor and say, which are you? (laughs) Hallelujah. But seriously, I make a joke, but I shouldn't, because the fact of the matter ends is what I started to say earlier about the Bible, every scripture having significance, and every jot and tittle meaning something. Five went in. I mean, Jesus is the one that chose that number. Five went in. Five weren't able to go in. Fifty percent weren't saved. I'm just going to let that hang for a moment. (laughs) Now, in this church, I'm trusting that hopefully more than 50% of the people in here are actually saved. Julie, you hope so, right? Yeah. Anne, you hope so? Abby, you hope so? I still hope so. I shouldn't even make a joke about that. I, I don't have time. I really don't. I mean, I could do it over weeks and weeks, but this is where... Technically, ideally, as most of you know, I'm actually a Bible school person. I have to have, I need four hours a day, five days a week, so that you can walk, boom, 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 and look at it all, because that's like what I do and what Julie does when we study ourselves and what have you, and just, that's how I was, that's how God worked with me. And I, I do get really frustrated up there because I have like one hour to throw at you guys and I'm thinking about this relating to this, which connects to this, which connects to this, which connects to this. And all of this added together is what causes you to go, oh my God, I can see it. But this is really serious stuff because we, you know, it is true that many, 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 many over and over again, or there's tons of scripture, we'll read a few more. There's many places... Well, let me just keep reading here. We'll see it here. Then I'll finish that statement. Um, first, let me start, go back to verse 26, Luke 13, 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you wrongdoers. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and so on. We, we make this statement often. We talk about how, when he says about there were many that seem to be first, going to be last, and last will be first. And basically, again, in four other places in the gospel, Jesus speaks to this, and he speaks about the surprise, the basic surprise that's going to take place when we see who made it to heaven and when we see who didn't make it to heaven. Okay? And it's true. I mean, George Barna over there in America who does... The, Barna, the books that George Barna, he's a, he's a professional theologian, but he's a research artist, literally. He, all these incredible books, they're really thick. I mean, you have to take four years to read one book. <laughs> no, but I mean, all the statistics about the church age and what really happens and how many, the statistics, anything and everything in church life is done in some of these books. But it's absolutely true. And, in, and I have to say, sadly, it's very true in this nation you know, they say that something like over 65 to 70 percent of mainline preachers do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. And do you hear me? 65 to 70 percent of preachers, therefore, are not born again. And you have squads and squads, tons of people who gather to incredible communicators 
who love the skill of their speaking, but they're listening to a morally dead man. Do you hear me? There's all manner of preachers. This is what, again, like in that Matthew Henry thing, that are not, I mean, you know, in this nation, let's face it, the bishop of, who was it? The bishop of Durham, you know, he doesn't, he said most of the Bible is a myth. You know, you, I read, Jillian, we read some of these statements that these guys make that are supposed to be some of the church fathers of this nation, and it actually caused me to just uh, quiver. I mean, I just, I think, oh, I mean, my God, you know. And yet people go and they listen to them and they applaud them and what have you. Like I've said, not trying to be dramatic, but like I said, you know, when, as a minister or preacher, you need to read the pastoral, pastoral epistles over and over again. And you need to study the book of Ezekiel, study all that bit about the shepherds and sheep and this, that, and the other, and about the shepherds that are false shepherds and the responsibility of being a shepherd of people's souls and what have you. It's an incredible, dangerous thing to stand behind this pulpit. Anybody who's in ministry better take it very, very seriously. It's not a joke. But to sit to know the people, I mean, like, I've got good friends over me, like, you know, Doug Williams, somebody was just talking about earlier. Doug's one of my best friends. And, you know, we've been to some things together over the years, and we've met some pretty highfalutin, high-flying people, and in private conversation with them, you find out they just, they, they're just not saved. They're totally not saved. They do things that are so anti-Christ that it makes you just sick to your stomach. You know, and Jesus himself said, if the very elect be deceived, there's all manner of false teaching in the church. There's all manner of false professors of Christ in the church as a whole. And again, this is why we have to really be sincere. God's looking for people that take the sacrifice of his son rather seriously. It's no light matter that the very son of God, that part of the plan of God because of the fall of man in the garden was that the very, very son of God would take upon himself flesh, leave paradise and glory to come to this stinking foul earth and take upon himself flesh and walk amongst us for 33 and a half years, be tempted in every way like we are tempted, and yet be without sin, to walk, to do what no natural man could do, and yet he did as a natural man, so that he might be a savior to those who actually call upon his name and actually believe in it. And actually understand, again, like I said, we should be pretty dadgummed, grateful we, we really under, we, you know the, it's not a game this is death and life it's it's eternity whether you realize it or not you every single one I know it's kind of old teaching to intersperse but remember you are a spirit you really are a spirit being you have a soul and you live a body but you're a spirit and spirits only will ever live in one of two places, the, uh, heaven or hell. That's it. For eternity. Eternity. Eternity is a long time. <laughs> eternity. 
And so our life here is to really be one where we actually demonstrate to our families and to those around about us that, you know, we are different now. That we have something, there's actually been an exchange take place where a heart of stone that once occupied me is gone. That a brand new heart has come into me. You see, without sounding boastful, I know I'm saved. <laughs> I, I have the assurance. And see, when you read these scriptures, this is not supposed to provoke a lack of assurance. It's supposed to provoke those who have a false assurance into looking at their own lives. And it's supposed to provoke those of us who know Christ to just keep a stern watch on our lives and move forward. You know, the Bible, some of the disciples, some of the others, you know, they said some of these sayings are hard sayings. Who can hear them? And some of the scripture has a lot. There are hard sayings. But the fact of the matter is, again, sometimes we just let church become like a set of flipping hobby. Church isn't a hobby. God, you know, I don't want to keep harping on this. But it's not a hobby. Jesus Christ actually walked this earth as a sinless man. And he did all this for you and I. And so he's rather worthy of our praise and our worship. It's not, you know, we don't just sing to sing and see who can boogie the best and whatever. I want us to come to church on Sundays, like I keep saying every week before, forgive me, I'm being repetitive, but... You know, as far as this particular fellowship, we only get this one time once a week, really, to come together fully as a family. We're talking at the max five hours out of, I don't know how many hours, forgive me, I forget how many hours are in a week. We're talking about one five-hour time of the week where we, we can come together and actually celebrate this truth together as a family. My God, it's just once a week. And again, if people are diligent about being on time for a football game, you can't be on time before the living God. I don't understand that. I just don't. I don't care. You know, excuses aren't reasons. And at some point, you have to start looking at children and say, maybe, you know, I don't, you know, I'm getting, you know, it's not a big deal to me. Well, it's a big deal. One day you're going to find out it's a big deal. If you don't think it's a big deal right now, Trust me, the light will shine upon you one day soon. And you will understand that maybe you should have given heed a little bit stronger than you do right now. It's just the way it is, because this stuff is real. It's not just something we do on a Sunday. Hallelujah. Rod's such a nice guy. I love him a lot. I really do. Now, no, 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 not trying to get... No, no, that's all right. Second Timothy, let's put this up. Second Timothy, uh, chapter three, starting verse one. If you take your notes, write down Acts twenty, verse twenty-eight to thirty-one. That's where Paul says, "Be careful to watch over the flock of God," where he speaks about false teachers coming in, and also put down Second Corinthians eleven, verses twelve through fifteen. That's where Paul talks about false servants of righteousness. Even Satan himself will present himself as an angel of light, and there'll be false shepherds, there'll be people who actually have, you know, that look like sheep again, that are, they're, they appear as ministers of righteousness, but they're born from beneath. Anyhow, 
2 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 5. But I understand this. Everybody say, I, I'm going to understand this. Say that again. I'm going to understand this. <laughs> in the last days will come and set in perilous times of great stress and trouble, hard to deal with and hard to bear. For people will be lovers of self and utterly self-centered. Lovers of money and aroused by an inordinate greedy desire for wealth, proud and arrogant, contemptuous boasters, they will be abusive, blasphemous, scoffers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, profane. They will be without natural human affection, callous and inhuman, relentless, admitting of no truce or appeasement, they will be slanders, false accusers, troublemakers, intemperate and loose in morals and conduct, uncontrolled and fierce, haters of good. They will be treacherous, betrayers, rash, inflated with self-conceit. They will be, I don't think anybody in here is part of this verse. They will be lovers of sensual pleasures, and vain amusements more than and rather than lovers of God. Now, are we surrounded, are we or are we not in this day and age surrounded by sensual pleasures and vain amusements? I love the Discovery Channel. I'm always watching these things about Alaska. I watch everything there is about Alaska because my cousins live out there, but because I just, you know, I'm a mountain guy. I love the mountains. I look at that stuff and I go... Tears. I actually get tears watching bears fight each other and stuff, you know, it's corny stuff. But I mean, even that, you know, I love that. And I, and I, have, to some, I, have, to, I have to really ask myself, okay, wait a second, wait a second, even with something that's not even, that's not sin. But does it have a place in my life? Is it idolatry? Do I, does it have a place of strength in me more than my love for God? It's something as simple as that. See, we're not talking about something as out and out sin. Just stuff that is so much more important to you. I mean, you'll plan your whole week around a TV schedule. There are people that do that, you know. And yet, Sunday, one day to come together and actually declare before witnesses that we're grateful that we're thankful and you know what that's just it's just I can't exert too much strength to do that I, it's no big deal if I get there late or whatever because whatever the worship goes 45 minutes and Rod talks too long anyhow and blah 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 and it's just no big deal I'm telling you that attitude has to change I don't care where you go to church it just has to change but this whole thing here. So anyhow, but he says, understand this. This is what it's going to look like. People will be lovers, essential pleasures, and vain amusements more than rather than lovers of God. For although they hold a form of piety, they deny and reject, and they're strangers to the power of it. Listen to this phrase. Their conduct belies the genuineness of their profession. In other words, how they live absolutely denies what they say they are. And then it says, avoid all such people. I got a whole four-hour teaching I used to do years ago called, again, just wrong alliances. 
all the scriptures that talk about who you should be very careful about associating with. And it just says here, avoid these people. Anyhow. Now, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Go to that real quick. Gosh. Unbelievable. Is the one where we said, well, I'm just going to read it from the Amplified. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, examine and test and evaluate your own self to see whether you're holding to your faith and showing the proper fruits of it. Let me tell you, when you actually have saving faith, the Bible says there will be fruit show up in your life. Hear me? We know what Galatians speaks about, the fruit of the Spirit, the joy, the love, the peace, the long-suffering, the patience, these things. If a person has none of those, we have to question their salvation. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. If you're born from above, there's some fruit that I can see in your life. And you can see in other people's lives. The change, when you know somebody, I, I have... I joke about Bobby sometimes, but I, Bobby, she's going to be in this, join some people in some outreach called Club Angels, and, you know, Bobby used to go to clubs a lot before she saved. I asked her this morning, joking, I said, and now there's this ministry where they go to clubs, and they're just there, and evidently they speak to people that are at the clubs, and they minister Christ to them. That's really cool. You know, they wear this T-shirt that says Club Angels. I asked her if she was going to dress like she used to in the world, and she said, no, I don't think so. But Bobby possibly if some of her old, 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 old friends, you know, that she hasn't seen since those days, if they saw her now, they would probably notice a little change. Just a little bit. You know what I mean? I still have people, like I said recently, last year and a half, somehow, a bunch of people that used to know me in high school and know what kind of a person I was. They've heard that Rod's a minister, and all of a sudden they've found me on Facebook, and some of the comments, you know, I just cry. I heard you're a minister. <laughs> Say, you're a what? You lead a church? You? Bear? Sugar Bear? Rod Anderson? You? You know, and they go, man. We told them they were lying when they told us. They can't conceive. But I know how different I am. And like all of us who've been really saved, you change. Uh, you know. And yet, and yet, and yet, like I've said to somebody before, like I've said to people before, and just the other day we're talking to somebody. I always remember the day Jamie, my son, you know, came up and sat down next to me. Before Julie and I married, you know, Julie's always been in, been in church. We'll put it this way. Jamie was raised in church. And one day Jamie came to sit down next to me, and he was so honest, and I really appreciate his honesty. He just said, Dad, I don't know, I think he was 15 years old, something like that, 14, 15 years old. He said, Dad, and I said, yeah. He said, and he hesitated, he goes, I I don't know. He said, I've been in church all my life. He said, I don't know sometimes when I hear them here preaching. I don't really know if I'm changed or not because I've always been in church. He said, you, Dad, he said, you know you've changed because of, you know, what your life was before you were saved, you know, the prison and all the stuff that I went through. He said, you know, I mean, you can, it's evident, you know in your own heart, you know the change, you know that you're a different person. But he said, I don't, I don't know, because I've been raised in church all my life. 
I haven't had that something. And you know, I said, you know, Jamie, I said, I really, I said, I appreciate it. And I said, it'll happen. You'll know. And uh, Judy and I, we talked about it. We both prayed. And it wasn't, gosh, I don't know how, within the next year or something. So actually, uh, it, it was a youth thing at Ashburnham. We were there, and there was this Christian band. There, I forget the name of who they were, but basically, I walked in this, and the, they had like a basketball court there, and I walked in, and Jamie had got to talking to the head of the band because, you know, the love of music. And I walked in, and nobody else was in the whole gymnasium but my son and the head of this band. And they were both on their knees facing each other. And this guy was praying with Jamie. And basically, he, he, he had his personal visitation there and then. And through another person, not through mom and dad. That's often the way it happens, believe me. And this is why going to these youth things is so important for young people. But then he knew. Something changed, and he knew. He knew. And then we could tell the story about how still, have, still fighting the thing, long hair, earrings pierced, and all this kind of stuff. And, and Julie and I really started praying Ephesians. And like I said, 11 days later, Julie walks in the door. And she says, hey, Rod, check this out. And Jamie walks in, his hair's short, no more stuff in his nose, no more stuff here. And he's got an application to go to a Bible school in, in Chicago. And I'm going, what? You know, how quickly somebody can be changed. This is why we pray for our families. This is why we pray for those that we love, that they will have their own personal visitation. Everybody needs that something. See, the thing about God, he's so beautiful. He will speak your language. I'm telling you, he'll speak street if you need to be spoken to street. You hear me? God's not above speaking East England, East London, (laughs) Cockney. God will prophesy to you Cockney. Believe me, he will. (laughs) Hallelujah. Examine and test and evaluate your own selves to see whether you're holding to your faith and showing the proper fruits of it. Test and prove yourself, not Christ. Do you not yourself realize and know thoroughly by an ever-increasing experience that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you're a counterfeit and disapproved on trial and rejected? But I love the fact the Amplified says through an ever-increasing experience. See, this is what will happen. Anyhow, I'm really going to race now because I just saw my watch. I talked about in the very beginning, I said about people who run out of gas. Anybody ever run out of gas? See, this is what happens sometimes in church. People just lose their fire. They run out of gas. So just real quickly, people who run out of gas. People who, these are people, well, one, some of the people who run out are people who simply refuse to heed the warnings that are in God's word and the basic invitation to salvation through Christ's blood, right? They just, the warnings come, the warnings come, but nah. Number two, those who are lulled into a false confidence by the fact that everything seems cool at the moment. In other words, people who just say, nah, I remember when I was with Teen Challenge and when I, we used to go out and minister with David Wilkerson's teams. And I always remember going to East L.A. to these gangs, to the center of Compton, where the worst gangs in Los Angeles, East L.A. that you've ever heard, the bloodiest gangs, the worst violence that you could ever imagine. And this one guy was 18 years old, and he was the head of this youth gang. And the youth gangs are always the worst because they think they're always having to prove themselves. I'm, I'm bad. I'm the baddest gangster in the block. I'm bad. I'm so bad, I got a bulldog with a gold tooth. You know? <laughs> sure, they'd say, they'd say goofy. Seriously, that's what these guys would say. I'm not bad, but the bad send me Christmas cards. It's, pen- it's penitentiary talk. You wouldn't know what I'm talking about. But anyhow, this guy, we, I, we got this dude, myself and his friend, Fernie. Julie knows who I'm talking about. 
We got this guy. He was the head of this gang. We were talking to him. Said, "Dude, you know, really, you need to give your life to Christ. You don't have to live like this." You know, we went through the whole nine yards. Sat with him. Guy cried. Did the whole thing. But he said this. I've never forgotten. He said, "You know, man." He said, "I know this stuff is true." He said, "My mom's tried to tell me about this." He said, "I, I do want to give my life to God." He said, "I do want to get out of the gangs." But he said, "Listen." He said, "Could we talk maybe uh, two weeks from now?" And I said, "Why two weeks from now?" He said, "Well." He said, there's these mean parties in the next two nights. <laughs> he said, I really want to go to these parties, man. He said, I, want, I just want to really kick out in these parties. And he said, and then there's, we got to meet with another gang, man. He said, next Thursday, and stuff's going to come down. He said, you know, I got to be there with my boys. And you, know, and you sit back and you go, it's because that's street sense. See, that's what the world says. Nah, I can do this, but I, I'm, I can do it another time. There's still time. There's still time. I can just kick back and relax. I don't really have to consecrate myself now. I don't have to get real now. I can wait. There's, there's more time. And I tell you, this is what the whole book teaches. Like it says, he will come at a time that you do not expect. And cold hard facts, this isn't just some old American evangelist type trip. But you, you know, they usually hear people say it. And a lot of them did it out of condemnation, trying to minister to people out of condemnation. But the fact is, he could come five minutes from now. And are you ready? Do you have the absolute assurance of eternal life? I mean, right now, do you have absolute assurance? I'm good. Hallelujah. I'm good. As for me, I'm good. I've got a peace because that's one of the signs. No more fear of death. Hebrews. This, the love of God has destroyed the fear of death. When they told me I was going to die, and when they started to wheel me in to give me that liver transplant, Julia tell you, I was laughing because I, crack, I was cracking up, just laughing. Because, I mean, you know, they'd give you this, they said you'd possibly die and all this stuff. But I was laughing to the point, I told you the really incredibly romantic moment my wife and I had. Because just as they're wheeling me in, about to open the doors, the actual surgeon put me in. The guy said, by the way, do you have false teeth? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, get them out. So I took my false teeth out and said, Julie, here, baby. <laughs> Real romantic moment. I may die. I want you to have an everlasting remembrance of me. (laughs) But I was just cracking up. I was just laughing. And I said, I love you, baby. And I rolled on in there and laid down, you know, and the doctor, they were cracking up. The doctor was just cracking up and said, are you ready? And I said, I'm ready, dude. Shoot. You know. (laughs) But I'm not saying that to boast. I'm just saying I've been delivered from the fear of death. I've already died. I'm not trying to be clever, but listen, people are run out of gas. Those who are lulled into a false confidence by the fact that everything appears to be fine at the moment. Number three, those who wrongly suppose that they'll have plenty of time to get saved later. He wants us to be fully assured that our sins are forgiven and that we have a salvation that is certain. He wants us to be confident because we are saved and we know it. I got to read these quick. John 10 verse don't don't try to put them up. I'm just going to try to burn through them. John 10:27 to 30, my sheep, my Jesus speaking, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them from my Father's hands. The Father and I are one. 
John, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Philippians 1, 6, for I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.12, because of this, in fact, I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed because I know the one in whom my faith is set, and I am convinced that he is able to protect and has been entrusted to me until that day. 1 John 5.13-15, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have before him. That whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us in regard to whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request that we've been asked for. Now, here's some vital signs. I'm going to put, put these up. This is where we go to the next part of the PowerPoint. I'm going to try to... <sighs> um, some vital signs that we're saved. Number one, those who have come, those who have come to a saving faith, have entered into a radically new and different way of life. I said it earlier. I'm different. Bobby's different. Julie's different. Very different. Forget who we were with the other day. Somebody said, oh, I know it was John. We were talking about, because I was at the barn and I was writing some of this stuff up. And Chris Matheson and John came in and started reading some of this stuff. And I said, you know, we just had a short talk about how do we, you know, somebody's really saved, <laughs> and John cracked me up. He said, well, I know one thing. He said, I know Julie's saved, so I'm just going to grab a hold of her, and I figure if I'm close to her, when everything happens, I'll be all right. See, my wife is saved. There ain't no doubt about it. All she thinks about is God. You know, I'm the one that gets convicted every time she walks in the room, because like I said, I'm watching Discovery Channel. Hallelujah. <laughs> Those who have come to a saving faith have entered into a radically new and different way of life. Something happened to Julie. She was phenomenally blessed. She had an out-of-body experience, and she's never, ever, 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 ever been the same. Nothing of this world carries great importance to her. Seriously, I'm a witness to that from being married with a woman for some 34 years. Shh, nothing else is, you know, no big deal. 1 Corinthians 6. I've got to read a couple of verses for each of these. don't know if I can or not, but I'm going to try. I'm out of breath now. I've just got a, this little bit to go. First Corinthians 6, come on, fingers, do the walking, do the talking. First Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous and the wrongdoers will not inherit or have any share in the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived or misled, neither the impure, the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who participate in homosexuality, nor cheats, swindlers, thieves, nor greedy graspers, nor drunkards, nor foul-mouthed revelers and slanders, nor extortioners and robbers will inherit or have any share in the kingdom of God. Now, you know what? I don't know if that means that or not. What do you think? Is it in the Bible? I said, is it in the Bible? Right. So, whether, so before you start freaking out about homosexuals, it says swindlers and cheats too. I've never done anything homosexual. (laughs) 
Have you ever cheated anybody? No. Verse 11, and, which, and this is what's beautiful because then Paul says, and such some of you were once, but, hallelujah, you were washed clean, you were purified by a complete atonement for sin, and you were made free from the guilt of sin, and you were consecrated, you were set apart, hallowed, and you were justified and pronounced righteous by trusting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of our God. Another one to look at for yourself, put down Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 24. The second vital sign that you're saved is simply those who are Christians, like I've already mentioned, do or no longer fear death as they once did. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews 2, and let's read it anyhow. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. Maybe you'll get there before me so I can read it from the screen. Nice font. You're fired, whoever's back there. <laughs> Since therefore these his children share in flesh and blood in the physical nature of human beings, he himself in a similar manner partook of the same nature. He did this for a reason, thereby by, <laughs> that by going through death, he might bring to naught, that means bring to nothing, that he might bring the knot and make of no effect, make of no effect him who had the power of death, that is the devil, next verse. Why? And also that he might deliver and completely, say completely, and completely set free all those who through the haunting fear of death were held in bondage throughout the whole course of their lives. See, they say, psychologists say that every fear known to, known to medicine, every fear known to psychology, every fear known to man has its root fear in the fear of death, in the fear of separation from life. But that's the one, one of the major things that makes you know that you know that you know that you're saved. That you're just to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And see, it's got to be more than a scripture you can quote. Like I said, there's all, there's... All these people that profess Christ, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, I've got to be careful, but I'm saying in the church, please go over this stuff yourself. Like I said, I feel like I'm really being remiss here because I, I, it's, this is a study. This isn't just a one-off sermon. This is something that you should, you know, it's, you go through in a Bible school situation where you have a week to talk about stuff. But you really do need to understand the need to... Exhort one another daily while there's time to love your brother and sister enough that you do help them, that you're there with them, that you're able to say, hey, I love you, man. You're getting a little loose here. Check yourself out. You know what I mean? That's a real friend, right? Right? Seriously, that's a real friend, somebody that loves you enough to say, hey, uh, you need to catch yourself here. I believe in having fun, but you're getting a little loose. You know what I mean? We're supposed to help each other. Um, no longer have the fear of death. Third vital sign is those who are Christians simply have a hunger for God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Um, you can put it up there. I'm just concerned. See if you can put it up there for me. I'll just let you do it. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's only a little while longer. Everybody can take a deep breath, okay? I've only got, you see, like three more thingies here. But also in those days, 
there rose false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among yourselves who will subtly, stealthily introduce heretical doctrines, destructive heresies, even denying and disowning the master who bought them, they will bring upon themselves swift destruction. Next verse. And many will follow their immoral ways and lascivious doings. Because of them, the true way will be maligned and defamed. Next verse. And in their covetousness, their lust and the greed, they will exploit you with false and cunning arguments. From of old, the sentence of condemnation for them has not been idle. Their destruction, their eternal misery. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate you. Their eternal misery has not been asleep. And again, this speaks to so many... You know, I feel bad saying it, but it's the truth. So many of the false preachers that there are. So many of the ministers that are in this world right now that don't know God. So many of them in this nation who are in positions of extreme church authority who deny the virgin birth. They deny the resurrection. That's the truth. They're they're bold about it. Of course, I don't believe in that. Mm, The Bible is mostly allegorical. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. That's one of the major arguments theologians have. That this isn't something prescriptive means that you should try to live like this. Oh, no, no, no. Nobody can live like this. That was only in those days. It's descriptive. It's simply showing how the early church lived. But to think that we could live like that today? No, 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 no. Wrong. (laughs) It is prescriptive. It's telling us how to live and have a life worth living now. Hallelujah. Um... Number four, uh, let me just, I'll just read the rest of them. You can look at the verses later. A vital sign that you're saved, those who are Christians now see spiritual truths to, where they, to which they were blind as believers. Second Corinthians 3, verses 14 through 18 is the one I have circled. But just the fact that before you knew, before, when you're saved, God's spirit in you begins to illuminate. That's what it says part of his job is. He illuminates scripture. He illuminates the word of God and you suddenly see these things but there are masses of people like I said if you're not born from above there's nothing to show in the light on this they'll make a story out of it as opposed to receive life from it there's a big difference number five those who are Christians have the internal witness of the spirit Romans 8 14 the spirit himself beareth witness that with our spirit that we are the sons of God amen the Holy Ghost if you're saved bears witness In other words, it pushes the truth to your spirit, and you have this knowledge. I have this assurance. It's not something I have up here. I don't, Rod doesn't think like he used to think. See, one of the major things that prove you're saved is this. What do you pursue every week? What do you pursue? And you see, there were times before I was saved, I knew I would wake up, and you you. Well, I can only put it in simplistic terms. You look for a way to mess up. (laughs) You're looking forward to the next opportunity to sin. Of course, then you didn't think it was sin. Then you just thought it was partying and having a good time. I can't wait till I get some more drugs. Really looking forward to going out with that young woman. (laughs) See, there was a time when I was young too. I'm really looking forward to being with her, Matt. Oh, God, yeah, watch it. Really watch it, Dan in my dreams <laughs> but the point is Rod 
I don't pursue the things I used to pursue. I don't look for a way to see. Honestly, I know a lot of people that are in churches still very easily seem to find an excuse to do something that they flat know in their spirit is wrong. They find a way to make an excuse. It's okay if I do this. Right? That's why I do love Mike Brown, wherever Mike's here or not. But, you know, Mike and I, the few talks that we've had, you know, when you are a professional musician and you work out there and you're in the clubs and all the stuff that goes on and what have you, and a lot of the guys you're working with may be right with you, but a lot of the guys, you know, could be hellions, if you know what I mean. But, you know, it's real easy. I mean, it's real easy to mess up when you work in the world, isn't it? Particularly in the music industry or anything like that, because you've got all, everybody's wanting to suck up to your ego and blah, 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 all these kind of things that happen. But you've got to have that thing where you finally, you draw a line in the sand and you go, no, that's not who I am. Hallelujah. That's, I'm a Christian. And you're unashamed about it. I don't, God, I don't have an, I, like I said, I always remember, if something happens, see, the Bible says, you're, you know, that it, you have to confess that you're saved. It says, if Jesus said, if you don't confess me before men, I can't confess you before my Father. And I, one of the lessons I, one of the major lessons I learned when I first got saved is when I used to be so afraid to tell anybody that I was a Christian. Because, again, my past, I was working in the oil fields, and the oil fields, everybody's rednecks. I mean, you're working on these rigs, you're out there 12 hours on, 12 hours off, you're sleeping in a thing called the doghouse with 18 other guys, and everybody's cussing, swearing, every kind of a nude magazine there is is all around, blah, blah, blah. Rod gets saved, I'm working in this stuff out there, and these guys, and I start telling them, I just don't laugh at their jokes anymore, and they're going, come on, Rod, man, we know you, man, come on. And, you know, and they're telling the, and they, when they tell the jokes, I walk away, I don't hang around, and come on, man, you know, come, Rod, give me a break, man, we know who you used to be, blah, blah. But you just, something's changed. And I remember always telling this one guy, I looked at him, I said, listen, I said, I can't explain all this stuff yet, not that I ever will, but I always remember I looked at him straight in the eye and said, I don't know how to say it any way other than this. I'm different now. I'm not saying I won't make a mistake. I'm not saying I won't bang my fist and cuss again. I'm not saying I may mess up once or twice. But you know what? I found something that I know is true, and I'm going to follow this stuff. And I always remember telling the guy, don't, don't watch what I'm doing right now. Just check me out a year or so from now. And as months went after months, suddenly outside the doghouse, every once in a while, somebody, a guy would catch me alone. And he'd say, hey, man, he said, you're serious about this stuff, aren't you? I go, yeah, I am. He said, man, he said, the stuff, uh, I sound like I'm patting myself on the mouth. He said, the stuff I heard about you and the way you live now and the way you are, he said, you're real, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah. I said, it is real. It's real stuff. And they'd look around, always, several times, you know, will you pray for me, man? <laughs> you know what I mean? And suddenly you're the one who they start calling. They don't want anybody to know. I cannot tell you how many phone calls I used to get. Rod. Is this Rod? My nickname was Bear. Bear, is this you? Yeah. You know, what's that? He goes, listen, man. And they just start talking. I heard, I mean, I, I, I can't be true, but you're a preacher? And you know, I go, well, yeah, some call me that. <laughs> and man, and just to be able to pray with them and to see, i just telling you, so just catch this real quick. Like I'm trying to say, you know you're saved when you quit pursuing the stuff you used to pursue. You don't make excuses to do something that you know you ought not do. You don't do it anymore because there's something in you that's different now. The Holy Spirit's in here. 
Did I say you never fail? You never make a mistake? No. I've made two mistakes since I was saved. Those who are Christians have the internal witness of the Spirit. Number six, those who are Christians do not desire to know Christ more intimately. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10. Why don't you put that up if you could? Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10. I really am trying to shut up. I'm sorry, but I really am. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10. I know those little fingers are swimming around out there. For his sake, okay, yes, furthermore, I count everything as lost, as lost, compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth, and the supreme advantage of what? Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, and of perceiving and recognizing and understanding more fully and clearly for his sake I have lost everything and consider everything I've lost to be mere rubbish, refuse, dregs, in order that I may win and gain Christ the anointed one. Hallelujah. You hear me? In other words, people say, I don't want to give that up. You could understand anything that God, if there is something in your life that God wants you to stop, you've got to hear me, man. This is so simple. You need help to misunderstand it. If there's anything that God's really speaking to you about giving up, it's because he's wanting for you to make space so that he can give you something like a hundred thousand times better. Do you hear me? Oh, that's the biggest lie I think Satan ever tells when you're first wanting to come to church or when you first feel that pull All you think of is, oh my God, I'll have to stop this. They want me to give up this. And the fact of the matter is, when you first come to church, God doesn't talk to you about this. He doesn't talk to you about give this up, give that up, give that up. He just says, come to me. Come to me. I love you. I know every stupid thing about I love you. It's okay. Because God knows that his love is what changes you. It's that embrace that says, I know everything about you. It's okay. You're going to change. Just stay in the kettle, stay in the pot, stay in church because that's when the change happens. You get around people and every single one of us has similarities to our testimony. Hallelujah. Okay. And the next one, those, well, to the last one, number seven, those who are Christians are happy to leave this life behind. And we really do yearn for the day of Christ's return. Hallelujah. There's something, a pull that only can be explained as supernatural. You see the verses up there, the ones that I would have read out are Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, and the next ones, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But there's something in you where you long, where you see, you begin to watch the world news. You see the hellish things, the demonic things that happen, and uh, whether it's the ISIS, the way they be, you know, just the horrific horror of the violence that takes place in the world or the slavery that still exists and the children that are being abused, the young girls and this, all the stuff that are being brought into this sex, slave, sex slavery trip. and It just makes you want to go crazy. And you do find yourself going out of revelations, you know, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
because something strikes you that this is just preparation. I love the, the love of Scripture we read earlier, and again, it's a whole study in itself that the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our redemption. Just the down payment? Yeah, that's that's mind-blowing. God's Holy Spirit that created all the heaven and the earth, the creative element of the Godhead, Genesis 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. The Holy Spirit, all of the gifts of the Spirit, all of that has come into us, all this incredible opportunity for experiencing the power and the might of God. And God's Word says He's just the down payment. You see, if you begin to experience the absolute goodness and power of God, it's so mind-blowing when you do see tumors fall off and you do see things right in front of your eyes that cannot be explained in the natural. When you actually experience truly the supernatural, something that's beyond the natural, and when you see it and you're there and the goosebumps get up this far and then you realize all of that's just a down payment. In other words, the greatest thrill I've ever experienced in Christ, the most powerful experience I've ever had in worship, it's like the minutest, minutest, minutest example of what we're going to experience in his presence. Hallelujah. Okay, I'm going to finish. Everybody say praise God. Do these things which characterize Christians characterize you? Do you have these vital signs of spiritual life? of life. If not, it's real simple. Confess your sin. Trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross of Calvary. He did bear your punishment, and he offers you his righteousness and eternal life. Please don't wait until it's too late. We started this whole thing about these ten virgins who hung around church. They were right with him on the streets, listening to Jesus' teaching. They said, hey, we heard you teach. We were there. It even says, we ate and drank with you. And he said, I never knew you. Who are you? Because they'd never opened their heart and did this, this one word. They never actually trusted Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And there are people that are doomed to eternal perdition that are in every church in the land. God, deliver us from that attitude. Amen? No slipshod Christianity. Be serious with yourself. But let me give you one really good statement that Billy Graham said years and years ago. I've never forgotten. It's one of my favorite quotes about salvation. He said this. He said, let me tell you something. He said, if, you're, if you constantly have to keep asking yourself, whether or not you're saved, listen to me. He said, if you're constantly having to ask yourself, am I saved or not? Am I saved or not? He said, basically you are. <laughs> because you wouldn't have. See, the thing is, if there's that sense of, <laughs> if that's a form of the fear of the Lord. In other words, there's something in me that definitely wants this. And I love that. He says, then you're more than likely saved. But see, it's like when I teach a love walk, there's a, when I share about what the difference is between love and hate, I forget where I found this quote all those years ago, but they said the opposite of love, the opposite of love isn't hate, 
The opposite of love is indifference. Eh, indifference. Eh. What do you think about church? Eh. What do you think about the Bible? Eh, you know, I like to read. <laughs> That's a danger sign. So I'm, I'm finishing, but I really, this morning, I do want to ask, to say the least, if there's that, if you know that you know that you know that there's that sense of, there's just an indifference in you, then you need to confess that as sin out of your life. I said you need to confess that out of your life. If there's no real hunger there for the things of God, you need to confess that out of your life. You really do. You need to rid yourself of that. And you need to at least make that first step by coming to God for God. You know, I want hunger. I may not have it right now, but I want to be hungry for you. And I want that inward witness. I want to know that I know that I know. If I can know, you can know. Hallelujah. So, we're going to finish. If, if you need assurance of your salvation and you you heard something that might be in your own spirit this morning then this is a good time for us to pray with you as a family right right so I'll just ask that simple you know if you need prayer if you want to have that assurance and you're able to, and you are sitting out there right now and you say and you're saying I really don't know the cold hard fact is I don't know for sure that I'm gonna to go to heaven I have I don't know for sure if that's you, then let's, let's pray for you. Why don't you come up forward right now? And Judy and I will pray for you right now, right here, okay? If that's you, come on up. Hallelujah. It's all right. I'm just going to sit here and smile for a moment. I got all day. Hallelujah. Maybe everybody's perfect. I don't know. Possibly. See, here's somebody that's bold. She's brave. Hallelujah. Father, help us to be real, <clears throat> to be unashamed about the fact that we sometimes get so busy in the world that church becomes second place, or it's just, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's definitely not first place in my life. In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why don't you guys that are up here, just lift, lift your hands to heaven and let me just pray this. What, everybody just pray this with me. Because I know there's some of you other guys that are sitting out there that, you know, should be up here. That's all right. But just say this with me. Just shut your eyes. Actually, remember who gives a rip who's around you right now. This is about you maybe taking one of the best steps you've ever taken in your life where suddenly the fruit of salvation begins to really manifest. Say this with me. Close your eyes tight. Say this with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I am bringing my life to you right now. My whole life. I'm tired of living a lie. I want to be solid in the faith. Jesus, I'm asking you to show yourself alive to me. Show yourself alive to me. Speak my language. Grant me the courage 
to say no to the things I need to say no to. Grant me the courage to say yes to the things I need to say yes to. So, Father, here I am. Forgive me of the lapses in my life. Forgive me for putting so many other things in a place that should be belonging to you. Forgive me for that. I need your strength, Holy Spirit. I need your help to put these things aside that I might pick up Christ. So I give you thanks right now. I give you thanks right now for beginning a fresh work in my heart, for bringing this stuff alive to me. In the name of Jesus, I give you thanks for it. I'm going to burn for you, and I'm going to live for you. In the name of Jesus, here I am. Take me. Take me. Here I am. Take me, oh God. And make me what you want me to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Father. Lift up some praise to God. Lift up some praise to God right now. Give God some thanksgiving. Give God some thanksgiving. Push past your flesh for a moment and just say thank you to Him, okay? Seriously, don't wait. Don't look around. Close your, just do some business with the Holy Spirit right now yourself. Let, I mean, you know, right now, right this moment, the Holy Ghost can do something in you that changes your entire destiny. All you have to do is lean in, center yourself, focus, give Him the freedom, say, Here I am, Holy Spirit. Here I am, Holy Spirit. Here I am, Holy Spirit. Touch me, Holy Spirit. Touch my life, Holy Spirit. Remember it said, you press in, you strive to enter into the narrow gate. You agonize a little bit, you push in. You're not a five-minute prayer warrior. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 